and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another week. I know many of you kicked off the Lifeline Push-Up Challenge last Thursday and keep us posted in the Challenges That Change Us Facebook community on how you are going The push-up challenge is to help shine a spotlight on the devastating number of lives lost to suicide in 2021. Also, it's been a very busy week here behind the scenes at Challenges That Change Us and Try Altitude Performance. I have run a number of corporate workshops on disc personality profiling for teams. Every time I run one of these workshops, I'm blown away by people's comments. I had one gentleman call the very next day after his work session to book in his whole family into the next public workshop because he found the information so valuable. Honestly, if you're listening and you have not been to a DISC personality workshop for you or for your team, you need to reach out today. This will change the way you think and work forever. DM or email me this week. Today, I want to introduce you to Kim Grundy. We have the heartbreaking conversation about losing her baby girl, Chloe, at 23 weeks. We talk about the early signs that something was wrong and how hard it is as a first-time mum to push back and trust your intuition. When you are told everything is okay, go home, take a bath, you assume everything is okay and that you must be overthinking it. If there is one thing you take away from this podcast today, please let it be to trust your intuition. Advocate for yourself. Nobody knows your body better than you. And Kim said right after the interview that she'd forgotten to remind everyone that. It is so true. In my first pregnancy, I had some unusual things happening and when I was told not to worry, I went home thinking I must be overreacting. We later found out that I was not overreacting at all. In fact, it was something that we absolutely needed to bring to the doctor's attention. Kim shares her journey, the early warning signs and what unfolded over the next 48-hour period, the challenges she and her partner had to navigate once they returned home from the hospital and in particular when she felt pregnant again. When we started, I wasn't sure how I was going to go with this episode, but the way Kim speaks is inspiring. She speaks so beautifully about something that is so heartbreaking. If any of this content causes you to stress, know that there is help out there or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Kim also talks about Bears of Hope and they provide support for families who experience the loss of their baby. Now let me introduce you to Kim. Welcome Kim to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Ellie. I love to start every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes them and what is it about that animal? After asking a bunch of friends and my husband and my one of my sons, who were all very unhelpful, I ended up 
choosing an elephant and reasons being is they can come across as mighty strong, but they are also soft and gentle on the inside. And they are also protectors of their herd. So my herd, my family, my friends, I'm very protective and loyal of. And yeah, nothing can stand in my way when I'm I'm protecting my kids too. Yeah, yeah. And I think I imagine when you become a mum as well, that just steps up a whole new level. Yeah. I remember having that feeling when I was my first baby came. I was like, I don't know if I love you yet because I've just met you, but I feel like I'd stand in a, in front of a truck for you. I just have that massive protection piece come up. Yeah, yeah. And today we're actually going to be talking about your journey to becoming a mum. There's mm. been some really tough challenges along that road. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I haven't spoken to you about your journey and about your story before. This will be mm-hmm. the first time I'm hearing it as well as the audience. But I just want to say before we even begin, thank you so much for coming on and sharing because it's not an easy topic to talk about. It's not easy to share, I can imagine. No, but it's important to share, I think, so that others feel comfortable with sharing or asking those tough questions. Yeah, yeah. And your story really began in 2015 when you were pregnant and about 20 weeks or 23 weeks, you started to notice things starting to happen or things that were starting to concern you. Is that right? Yeah. So we went for our 20-week scan, which is quite normal. You normally have a scan around that time to make sure that everything's growing, everything's measuring fine, you know, everything's tracking along the lines of the norm. They picked up that my cervix was a little bit short, but still in the range of normal, but just on that shorter side. And so we were just told, you know, business as usual, continue on doing whatever you're doing. And then maybe a week or so later, say maybe around 22, 21, 22 weeks, um, I started to lose parts of my mucus plug, which is something like a membrane that sits there near your cervix so that when it's your due date, some people lose that plug and that's what starts labour. Did you know that at the time, that that's what it was? Look, Dr. Google tells you everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I didn't, but like from Googling and stuff, I knew it wasn't right, but, you know, still not 100% sure. So I went up to maternity and I explained it and they just sort of said, look, you know, this is, it can happen. Generally it grows back and everything will be okay. And so, you know, as a first time mum, yep, no worries. Okay. And then I started to lose a little bit more. And at that point, I just sort of went, no, you know, there's nothing to worry about. They told me it's going to be okay. It'll be okay. Maybe fast forward a week or so, and I started to get things weren't right, didn't seem right. There were things happening that I knew were normal, but I felt like it wasn't not normal. There was just a feeling that you just felt like something was off? Yeah, I didn't feel well. I was sort of having a few pains here and there and I had quite a bit of discharge, which which I know can be normal in a pregnancy, but this seemed to be, again, not okay. So I remember I was having a lot of pain that was happening and I remember going up to the to the doctors and they up to the midwives and I saw a locum doctor and he examined me and his words were maybe you should go home and have a bath and I was like "Mm." and I remember saying to him no I shower every day like he made me feel dirty and I was like okay but I do shower every day and he's like oh yeah no that's fine just go home and have a bath it'll be okay 
So at that point, I was also having what I thought were contractions. But he basically he told me that sometimes your uterus can contract and you know it, and sometimes you don't pick it up, just like when you breathe. Sometimes you recognize that you're breathing, and other times it's just you don't recognize it. So again, as a first-time mum, you just take their word as gospel and, okay, yep, no worries, everything's okay, you've told me it's okay, it must be normal. And so we went home. So we only lived across the road from the hospital at that point. So it was just a quick walk. So we went home and we had some lunch and did whatever. And these contractions were still happening. They were quite intense, but again, I was told, okay. So yeah, we just went on with our day. My husband, as a hobby, he goes out hunting and shooting and fishing and all of this. So he had planned to go hunting that night, which was fine. No big deal. And I remember I went and had a bath, as the doctor had told me, and I was still having these contractions. And my husband had gone at that point, and I decided to start timing them because I was like, this isn't okay. And they were coming every – they were quite – maybe it might have been every five, three or five minutes, and they were, you know, consecutive. And so I thought, you know what, stuff this. I'm going back to the hospital. So I went up there, and it was a different set of midwives, different set of doctors. And I actually had a midwife and she took me into the assessment room and she sat with me and she sat with me with her hand on my stomach so she could feel what was happening. And she said, no, you're definitely having contractions. Something's happening. So I knew at that point it wasn't in my head. You shouldn't have to wait. Uh, I know. I'm already just like, you know, any any first-time mum, any experienced mum out there knows that feeling as a first-time mum where you get told something and you just think, God, I, I mustn't know because this is my first time on this journey. And Yeah. I'm, yeah, it's so challenging. So what happened then? So at that point she told me that they were admitting me and obviously, you know, you had just a thousand things start going through your brain and I was like, all right, all right can I go home and grab some things? Because, again, we were just across the road. Yep, no worries. And I remember walking across the car park thinking, what am I going to do? Like my husband, Ryan, he's out of service. He's out of town. He doesn't know what's going on. So I remember panicking, ringing my mum, telling her what was happening. And Ryan keeps a book. So my husband keeps a book of like all these properties where he goes to, what their phone numbers are. And so I knew where that book was and I was like, okay. So I went and got that book and I found the the lady's house where he like I found where he was at and I actually rang her home phone. It was like half past nine at night. And I'm I'm really sorry, you don't know who I am, explained who I was. I'm like, when Ryan comes back to the house, can you tell him like he needs to come to the hospital? And she I remember her saying, Oh, do you want me to go and look for him? And I mean, she's on this huge property. So no, it's okay, just you know, let him know. And I remember writing him a note, like, and he still got it. He kept it. And it's like, I think I said something like, please come to the hospital. I need you or something. This is where I am. And so he rang me on his way back into town and everything was fine. He came up when he got back to town, but he couldn't stay, which is normal. That's the hospital rule. So I remember him going home. And then through the night, I kept having contractions. They gave me a bit of Panadol. Not going to do anything, but, you know. And I remember getting up the next morning, it was about half past seven, and I went to get up and I felt this like popping sensation to which now I know was my waters breaking. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's quite a lot happening. And my mum was a cleaner at the hospital at the time, so I remember yelling at her because she was actually on the ward. And so she came in and she got the midwives and stuff. And they came in and assessed me and, yeah, this is what's happening. Your waters are broken. But it wasn't a lot. So it was like there was still – it wasn't all, all of, the of it. It was just part of it. I'm not sure that's any less scary. I don't no, know. It's I not, haven't it's been not. in that scenario. But I'm just like, I don't know that's going to calm me. No. Sorry, there's a little bit of water left there, but your waters are breaking at 20 – how far was this? 23 weeks? 23 or? weeks, yeah. So at that point, Ryan was already on his way across – from home and they'd organised for me to have a scan at some point that day, which happened to be around lunchtime when I could get in for a scan. So through that day, my contractions were getting quite intense, but we didn't know what was happening. No one had done an internal exam. Um, we were just waiting for that scan. So we went up to have that scan and I remember usually, you know, when you go and have ultrasounds, they kind of have the screen so you can you can see and they can see and you know, one big happy family. And I remember I couldn't see anything. And so obviously I'm just watching the sonographer just to see if there's any facial expressions, you know. And I remember saying to him, Oh, you know, how does my cervix look? And he's like, Yeah. And just no, you know, no facial expression, no nothing. And I was like, Okay. And he went and got the other sonographer who I remember hearing him say, no, don't worry about taking any, because they take like stills and stuff. Don't worry about taking anything of that. Just send them back to the ward. We'll ring the ward. So off we went back up to the ward. And I remember going back into the room and the midwife, Ryan left. He had to go to the bathroom or something. He left. And this is a significant part in the story, which is why I'm saying he went to the bathroom. And when he came back, the midwife followed him in. And I could just see her face and I knew it wasn't okay. So basically what they had picked up in that scan was that the baby's foot had already come out of my cervix. So one of her feet were already out of my cervix. So I can't really remember what the midwife said at that point because obviously it's a bit of a blur, but basically this baby's coming and there's nothing we can do to stop it now, which is a lot. Very few hospitals are set up for a pregnancy coming, you know, baby coming at that age, but we're certainly not here rurally. No. Yeah, if we were in a bigger hospital, maybe after she was born, potentially something could have happened, but certainly not in a smaller hospital. So, yeah, all I remember is just I, I just kept repeating, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again to Ryan because at that point I felt like my body had failed. And it was my fault, you know. And I remember her saying, do you want me to get your mum to come in? Because, again, she's hovering out in the corridor. And I said, no, just give me a minute. Just, you know. But she could hear me crying from out there. So she came in and obviously she knows that it's not good news. Um, so she's quite upset. We're all, you know, it's a mess. And I, the midwife didn't tell us anything as such. So she just told us this is what's happening you know, your baby's feet are already out. There's nothing we can do. But I didn't know what happened. And she left us in a good space. Like she left at a good time because obviously we needed each other. I remember thinking, all right, well, what happens next? You know? Mm. What does this mean? You know, because it's one thing for us to know now, for you and yeah. I to sit here and have a conversation that Armadale can't at that many weeks. But when it's your first pregnancy, you don't have conversations with the doctors about what happens if the baby's feet come through at 23 weeks. Yeah. I mean, I knew that. She, well, I didn't know it was a shit at the time, but I knew that we would have to 
well, I assumed we'd have to give birth. I knew all that, but I didn't know what the process was. So I pressed my buzzer and two midwives came in. One was a younger midwife who had been with us throughout the day. She wasn't a student midwife, but she must have been relatively new. And another was a senior midwife. And when the senior midwife came in, I said to her, you know, what happens next? What's going to happen? And she looked at me and she said, well, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're here for. I don't know what you're talking about. And I just remember thinking, like, are you kidding me? Like, you can see in this room by the looks on our faces that whatever's happening, and I understand you don't know, but whatever's happening isn't a good thing. And I remember pointing to the younger midwife behind her saying, well, she knows what I'm here for. And she said, oh, well, she can look after you then. And she just walked out and left us. Far out. Yeah, and that's resonated with me ever since because while I understand that, you know, I'm, I wasn't a priority on the ward, I fully believe that in all the handover and everything that went on that day, people should have known what was going on. This is room number whatever. This is what's happening. This is why they're here. So I didn't see her for the rest of the day, which was quite nice, but I've not forgotten that. I can completely understand that. That's yeah. not something that you're ever going to forget, I don't think. No. So what happened next? It was just wait and see what happens. Literally just wait and see what happens. Yeah. So I remember them bringing a pan in to put over the toilet and it was like, well, you know, if you go to the bathroom and you deliver, so be it. And I remember saying, I am not giving birth to my child on the toilet. Like, I'm sorry, not happening. And I remember not going, not then wanting to not go to the toilet that day because I was too scared that I was going to deliver in the bathroom and in my world that wasn't happening. Um, so we were left to wait for an ultrasound, that ultrasound, and I continued to have frequent contractions all day. And this scan would have happened at about 12 o'clock. So, you know, it's quite a big, long day. And I remember being taken to the delivery suite around 5 o'clock in the afternoon and then putting a drip in and everything just, again, not to accelerate anything, just because things had started to happen a bit faster but not a lot. So they took me up 5 o'clock in the afternoon, put my drip in, and, again, it's just a waiting game. This is a world that I'm so un- unaware of. I've had three children, but just listening to you, it's like opening doors to something that I have no idea about. Yeah. So from then on, it was just a waiting game. I was in active labor, but how long it was going to take, I don't know. And it's so hard because I knew what the end outcome was going to be. I knew I was going to deliver um, and my baby was either going to be alive or die shortly after and it's so hard for your brain to comprehend because I could still feel my baby kicking like I could still feel like my baby was alive and you're telling me that I've got to deliver knowing the outcome it was tough so I was given gas and morphine which was good at the time because I was sort of in it but not really in it and to make matters worse I was also slowly hemorrhaging at the time so I was passing lots of clots and everything to the point where I even thought I'd deliver at one point and I didn't. So it was a lot. 
It was a lot. And did you, when you said at this stage, was there a chance, were they saying there was a chance that she would survive or no one had had that conversation? No one had had that conversation and that's something that I constantly battle myself with because I feel like I didn't fight for that. I didn't ask, advocate, I suppose. You weren't in a position to advocate. No. And at that point I was kind of like, all right, well, 24 weeks is viability. We are not 24 weeks, so what will be will be. But you're so close. You're 23. Like where's that line? I know. And you see babies now born at 23 weeks and this and they survive and it's like, oh, but hindsight's a great thing, you know. And so my husband, he his family came in to support him. So his mum and his sister came as well because he needed someone as well. My mum was there for me and for him, but, you know, he needed someone as well. So they were in the tea room just being there for him at a distance if he needed. And now this went on, me being in labour, went on until about 5 o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, 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 we're on to the next day now. So I've been in the delivery suite that whole time, but just things were progressing quite slowly. And so the call was made at that point to induce me um, so that I could be with the midwives who had been there that whole night. So I did not have to go through, you know, shift change and this and that and just do it while the water's quiet and, you know. And so they put a drip in to induce me. So I was induced at maybe 5 o'clock in the morning and at 25 past 5 I delivered our little baby girl, which was tough. I remember the look on my mum's face when she came out. I just, I won't forget it. She was surprised and sad at the same time. And I remember them asking Ryan if he wanted to cut the cord and he went to stand up and he sort of sat back down as because he didn't know what he was going to be faced with. But he did. He stood up and he, you know, he cut the cord and everything. And to be honest, she just looked like a baby, but just a miniature version. But another thing that resonates with me is that they handed her to me in a kidney dish. So... No skin to skin, no wrapping. They just gave me my baby in the kidney dish. And she was still alive at this point. It was awful. Um, I didn't think of it at the time, but now I look back, I'm like, it, you know. They're the things that still stay with you to yeah, this day. Yeah, yeah. And so I think one of the midwives took her and wrapped her and gave her back to me. Because I remember they went to sort of touch her and she sort of made like a, a really noise as if to say like, don't touch me, don't leave me alone. But they did and I I believe she survived around an hour before she passed. So that was tough. I, yeah, Like I say, I look back now and I wish I fought for them to save her but at that point you don't think about these things. Um, you just, yeah. You'd also just spent 24 hours... I was exhausted. They brought a bed yeah, in for Ryan to sleep, yeah. but he didn't sleep. The bed stayed folded no. up like he didn't. Yeah, you don't sleep. I did, but it was more of a drug-induced, like from the morphine and stuff. So. You can't be in a place. No one prepares you for being in a moment like that. No. So we stayed in the delivery room for quite some time because then you still have to deliver placenta and you still have to do all these things like you've just given birth to a full-term baby, but you haven't. So we had family then come. So my dad came in, my husband's mum and sister were there, so they came down. 
my father-in-law, my brother-in-law. So they all came at separate times just to, you know, visit and see the baby. I then went and had a shower and was, you know, getting all cleaned up. And my husband, we walked her back up to our room and he said, felt so proud, you know, um, just to push his daughter up the corridor. It was tough. Mm. I can't even imagine. <laughs> it was hard. And then one of the other midwives came in and she she explained to me that she was going to take our daughter um, and give her a bath and, you know, dress her and take some photos. And that was that was good. So she took her away and they did like the hand and feet prints, dressed her, took some photos and brought her back. And uh, I remember having a sleep and because we were exhausted, so we had a bit of a sleep. And now looking back, I'm like, why did I have a sleep? I felt really guilty for sleeping because I took that hour where I could have been spending time with her. You know, it's just like all these you things. You can't know. No, I know. I know. Oh, my heart's breaking for you because I'm like, you couldn't have known. No. Yeah. So and then we had to go for another scan just to make sure that everything was had been delivered and everything was fine. So... Yeah, it was a big day. Again, we had some more family and stuff come in. My grandparents came in and then we had a visit from a social worker. She kind of come in and explained to us about the next step, so getting in touch with Piddington's and things like that. So we had a chat to her and then it was sort of a waiting game then for the doctor to come and discharge her. So it was tough because... While we wanted to spend time with our daughter, we're sitting on a maternity ward with babies crying in the background and everything like that. So it was, it was hard. It was hard. I imagine it, it's sort of like you needed the space and time to grieve and to process, but maybe in that environment, listening to the other babies crying, it, it's also like, is this the right place for us right now? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. It's something that. I, no one should have to go through, you know. I, that's all I keep thinking as I'm listening to you. I'm just like that. It's heartbreaking. Mm. What did the next couple of days look like for you? Oh, I remember leaving the hospital. So we left at about half past seven that night and it was, it was leaving that hospital with nothing was tough. And I remember I just kept looking back because I knew I'd just left my daughter at the hospital and I was never, ever going to see her again. Like, it was it was hard. And we went home, we had dinner, we sort of went to bed and I remember waking up in the middle of the night crying and I was so upset because we'd never took a photo of the three of us. Like, I had a photo and Ryan had a photo, but we didn't have a photo as a family. And still today, this day, again, I'm like, why didn't we do that? But I just... I don't know, in hindsight, you know, it's one of them things. But the, the next few days were a blur. We had, you know, so many people cook for us, strangers that we didn't know cooking for us, like friends of friends, which was amazing, constant flower deliveries. And I couldn't stand to be alone. Like I remember even showering alone, which I did, but just not having someone, it was tough. And then having to make the phone call to Piddington to say, hey, this is me. This is if my daughter's up there. What do we do? Pennington's is a funeral home. It is the funeral home. Yes, sorry. Doesn't. Yep. Yeah. So we we spoke to Peter Howe. He was our director, 
And we sort of went through our options and we decided not to have a ceremony, not to do anything, because at that point, nobody knew her except for us. And so we just decided to um, have her cremated. And Peter Peter had said to us, look, if you're going to do it, I suggest we do it sort of straight away, just so it doesn't drag it out, you know. So we did that. Um, We went and just, again, to sign those papers to have your daughter cremated is something that no one should ever have to do. Ever. No. Ever. No. So we did that. And, yeah, a few days later we brought our little girl home with us. Did you give her a name? Oh, we did. And I've just been thinking I should have said that right from the beginning. So we call her Chloe May Grundy. So May was my great-grandmother's middle name. So, yeah, she was born on the 4th of August, 2015, the day before my men's birthday. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure, Kim, because like I said, it's something I've never experienced or even had people in my close world go through, but I can imagine the grief is so complicated, you know. It's- oh, yeah. It's numb. Like I remember for months I would just feel numb, like I just – nothing inside me was going on like I just felt empty um and then to have those conversations because you know yesterday you were pregnant and today you're not like just a I mean it's a small town so it filtered through you know quite quickly how did you manage that time of you know particular around those conversations because I know when we before we got on here today we were having a quick chat and I said to you that one of the things that is often hard is when you are speaking to someone you don't know what to say and then, you know, you and I had a little conversation about that, about Mm. this very thing. Honestly, can't remember what I was saying to people. I think a lot of, again, a lot of close friends and family knew where I worked at the time, the people I worked with, because I worked, it was sort of patient-based. So, you know, we'd have our regular elderly patients and stuff come in. So I think my work colleagues were informing them at the time so it wasn't one of those, I didn't really have, oh, I thought you were pregnant kind of, I didn't have that, um, which was nice. I was going to say, was it helpful for other people to know? Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, it's tough. And then, of course, you see babies everywhere. So that's hard again. And then, you, you know, you just, and you have your little milestones. Oh, I should have been due now. Or Yeah, like, you know, with their first birthday and their second birthday and, you know, there's so many milestones along the way. Yeah, yeah, and just due dates and everything like that. So you have your little first, which is tough, but I think you need to have them in an order to, to process them. So it's part of the journey, really. And, Kim, I know for so often but with any kind of grief, one of the most common things I hear people say is, it's been so long, like, and I'm still grieving. I'm like, mate, there's no time frame to grief. Like, there isn't. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, like, is it something that really stayed heavy on your heart for a year, for years? Is it still there now? Like, still there. Even it? telling my story now, like, I didn't think I'd get upset because I've told this story hundreds of times, but here we are. It takes me right back to the moment and I'm getting upset. Sometimes it, it catches me off guard, like you see something on telly or the kids will say something and you just, like, I don't actively cry anymore except for like on her birthdays and little things like that but you do catch yourself you're like oh my goodness like I can feel it and I guess for anyone listening just giving yourself permission to grieve and that there isn't that time you frame. Need like to. it's okay yeah absolutely you need to it's there's no point you can't 
bottle it up. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to help. And when you think back, Kim, what was the hardest part for you through the whole process and the whole journey? I guess being felt like I wasn't being listened to. I think had I been listened to right at the very beginning and maybe been examined or something like that, then we'd have a different outcome. The what ifs. The what yeah. ifs, you know, if I'd done something different, if someone had taken notice of something I'd said, if yeah. that's because a tough we now place, know yeah. Why? Like, you know, so after being pregnant with my son, complications started happening with him around the same time. So we now know what happened with her because of what happened. What did happen? So originally, so after I gave birth, they asked me if I wanted a autopsy. Um, and I said, no, like she's been through enough, leave her alone. There was nothing wrong with her. I don't want anyone to touch her. They sent my placenta away, which came back with an infection called chorioamnionitis. I think I pronounced that right. So it's an infection of the placenta, which I think looking back would have been all that discharge that I had. So why that? Why did you work that out with the second pregnancy? Well, moving forward, so I got pregnant with my son October that year, so not long after Chloe was born. And around that, again, we had the scan at 20 weeks and my cervix was looking a bit short, but along the lines of normal, but they knew. So at that point, I was no longer under the midwife's care. I had found a really good doctor who would carry me on through my whole pregnancy. So I stuck with him and he was going to monitor me closely. And I was the most paranoid pregnant woman you've ever met. And rightly so. Yeah. You know? I had many, many sleepovers at the hospital, um, just being so paranoid. And so, yeah, they did the scan. Yes, things are looking a bit short, but again, same as normal. And then around the same, so 22, 23 weeks, I started, I remember going to work and I was just, I had an ache. Like I was just, there was something not right. And so I took myself back up to the hospital and they scanned me at this point. They did an ultrasound. And my cervix was down to, it was very short, like there was barely anything left. And so at that point, I was put on an emergency surgery list to have a stitch placed in my cervix to keep it closed. Um, and I remember, again, Ryan was away for work, so he wasn't there. And my mum was there. And She's my strength. She is my pillar of strength. And I remember looking at her and she was saying, it's happening again, it's happening again. We're going to lose this baby. And I was thinking, well, if you're not being strong, I have to be strong. So I was like, nope, nope, it's all okay. Like everything will be okay. And I remember going into the bathroom and just losing my shit. I was so scared and so upset because I, I did, I really thought that we were doing this again. I barely survived the first time. They were like, I just, I didn't know how we were going to do it again. But they went and they put the stitch in. And then I was on a week's hospital bed rest. So my doctor wanted to get me to 24 weeks. If he could get me to 24 weeks, if anything started happening, there was more things they could do to help us. So I did that. I was in hospital for a week on bed rest. And then after that 24 weeks, I was... You would have been petrified. Yeah, absolutely. I thought we'd have to do it all over again and I couldn't do it. Uh, so I was let back out into the wild, so to speak, um, after 24 weeks. And it was just, 
I have your hospital bag packed and every day is a bonus. So me and the sonography team at the hospital became best friends. We were on a first-name basis because I was there every fortnight having scans to make sure everything was okay. It got to the point where the stitch was the only thing holding my baby in, but it was working. And through this time, so fast forward 10 or so weeks, through this 10-week period from the 24 weeks to 35 weeks, I was having little unexplained bleeds. So I'd wake up and I'd been bleeding or things like that. So it was pet, like I was petrified for this whole time. Like it's like walking on eggshells. Again, many, many sleepovers at the hospital being monitored. And I remember it was Saturday morning. I woke up and they'd been checking these bleedings, but nothing was happening. Everything looked okay. My cervix was fine. And I'd woken up again and there was a quite a fair bit of blood. And I remember ringing my mum because Ryan had to go to work because again we were told all the time it's fine it's normal you know so we weren't stressed but still wanted to be checked and mum took me up to the hospital and I didn't leave basically so the doctor came in to check me and he had said right we've had too many unexplained bleeds we're going to take your stitch out see what happens so we were 35 weeks at this point so the hospital delivers in Armadale from around 34 weeks you can deliver here provided everything's okay so yeah they came in took my stitch out at around half past four and from half past four onwards I was bleeding quite a lot to the point where I remember I went to change one of the pads that they'd given me and I knew well I felt that if I had changed it I would bleed all over the floor so I just put another pair of undies on and pressed my button (laughs) for the midwife to come in and she comes in and she's like, oh, Kim, I don't like this. And thinking, you don't like this. Well, I don't like this either. So at this point throughout the day, the midwives, I was nil by mouth, so I couldn't have anything to eat in case we had to go to surgery. And so they had then called the, the locum doctor to come in. And at that point, the midwives were already prepping me for a caesar. So I also had placenta previa, which is where your placenta is over your cervix. So... All along, it was probable that I was going to have to have a Caesar. So while they were waiting for the doctor to come in, I had my pretty stockings on. They were getting me ready to go. And I remember the doctor walking in and he's like, oh, okay, so we're going for a Caesar, are we? And the midwife's like, yeah, we need to do this now. I remember, again, my mom's heart breaking because she wanted to come with me and she couldn't come. It was one person only. And I just remember her face. And again, it sticks with me all the time because she was absolutely heartbroken. And I felt bad because she, I wanted her to be with me because she was with me for such a hard time in my life. I wanted her to be with me for the happy times as well. But, you know, it was what it was. That was the rules. And she knew that and I knew that. And so Ryan, we all, he had his scrubs on and we were straight up there and they called the paediatrician to come in, but they didn't wait for her. So within getting up to theatre, Jack was born within 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was very quick because they said to me that I could labour and I could, that's why they wanted to do a Caesar because I was losing so much blood as well. So they said that while I could labour, it would take me maybe six hours to labour and in that time, You will have lost too much blood. I would have lost too much blood. So while ever I'm okay and baby's okay, 
let's get him out. Which was why, yeah, I went for the Caesar because my placenta previa was only just. So it was kind of hit or miss. So, yeah, he was born within 15 minutes. And, yeah, we had a beautiful little boy. He was born at 35 weeks, um, but perfectly healthy, perfectly fine. Didn't need any special care nursery, didn't need any help. He was, yeah. Perfect little baby. Yes. Um, yeah. It was good. It, it was an experience, but I had my baby and he was healthy and he was happy. Yeah. Oh, Kim, just listening to it, I like, yeah, I don't even have words to say to you. Like I just, it's harrowing is what I think, like just listening to your story and what you've been through and what you went through and what you're still going through, losing the baby and then also just having to go through it a second time and being right on that cusp and not knowing that fear that you would have been living with on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. I can't even imagine what that would have been like for you and your family. Mm, It was tough. Yeah, you just you don't know how much strength you have until you have to engage it. Yeah, like if someone had said to you, you could go through this, you'd be like, no, I can't. No, (laughs) there's no way. I know that I said like I I couldn't have done it again, but I know I could have, but I don't know how. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Kim, you mentioned earlier about when Ryan went to the toilet, and that was a significant part of the story. (laughs) But I don't know that we told that part. Yeah. So. I only found this out, he only mentioned this to me maybe a year or so ago. So why I brought that up was that he mentioned to me that on his way back, he actually walked past the, the midwife who took the phone call from the sonographer and who had been with us. Um, she was the one who sat with me that, that night and felt my tummy and, yep, this is happening. So she'd been with us all that time and he actually walked past her and she was quite upset she was crying. She was very, very upset. And he knew at that point that it wasn't okay. And I guess that goes to show that, and I know that she took a few, because when she came in, I, I remember mentioning to you before that I could tell that it wasn't okay. Um, and I could see that she was visibly upset. And I guess we've got to remember too that these people are human as well. And knowing now, I've met her with her afterwards, like just chatting with her down the street. She's actually lost a baby. So, oh. you know, not only is she having to tell me I'm losing my baby, she's probably taken her back to her memory. So we've got to remember that these people are human as well. Yeah. 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 Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I guess something that's sitting there for me is, and I, I don't know if you're in a space to comment on this, but f- for someone out there that that may have lost a baby at any stage or any age that just doesn't even know how to get up in the mornings or how to keep getting through day by day, you know, like they're still heavily in that grief and they haven't had more children post the first experience. Do you kind of have any words or anything that you'd say to someone in that scenario? It does get easier. When I say that, I don't mean the grief goes away. I don't mean the pain goes away. But you learn to cope and you learn to channel that into other areas. I'm not going to say, yeah, go and have some more babies because it's it's tough. You don't want to because you're scared that you're just going to go straight back and the same thing's going to happen again. 
having my boys because we went on then to have another boy. As in two boys? Two boys, yes. I have two boys. They they don't replace that baby that you lose. They know, my boys, they know they have a sister. They know all about her. She's very much a part of our family. And I've gone a bit off track here, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, just I don't know what advice I have, but I promise you that the light, it gets brighter. Regardless of whether you have children or not, like it's tough to see people with other children. I know that. For me, it was people having girls. I mean, I am very blessed to have my boys and I wouldn't change it for the world, but part of me is missing that little girl from my life. So to see other people, you know, with girls, it was tough, but it didn't take my happiness away from them. You know, because you've still got to be happy. For, uh, it's hard. Don't beat yourself up. You're allowed to feel that. Mm, and you're allowed to have both those feel- feelings sitting side by side. You know, you can feel the grief and the sadness for your experience and happy for the person that, that's going through theirs, it, but honouring your space. Don't feel bad for the feelings that you have. Don't let people make you feel guilty for the feelings that you have. You're allowed to grieve. You're allowed to – grief doesn't have timelines. And, you know, I can hear that Ryan was there throughout that whole process with you. I guess, you know, if you had an opportunity to say something to him now from that from that journey, is there something that you'd want to say to him? Oh, just thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I know, you know, as the partner, as the, as the male, so to speak, like they feel like they've got to be tough. And I know and I saw in that moment that he wasn't and he – He's allowed to be. Like he lost his daughter as well and people tend to comfort the mother and not the father and I think it's so important to honour them as well. Like I've lost my daughter but he's lost his daughter. You know, he'll Mm. never walk his daughter down the aisle. He's never – things like that sit with me. I know, right? And so it's tough for him too whether he shows it or not and I watch him with his boys and I know that he's a fantastic father and – he misses out on little things like I do, like I will with our daughter, all those firsts. He misses them too. We've had this chat a lot, him and I, that what we've been through can either make or break a relationship because you see the, the struggles and the, the hurdles that people go through afterwards and the demons that they battle. And I can't thank him enough for his support. He, yeah, he's amazing. And it's made us stronger as a you know. mm. And Kim, we, we, we touched on it earlier in the conversation, talking about what what you can say to someone that is experiencing this kind of grief or has just experienced losing a child around, you know, during pregnancy or, or, or just after. I don't know that there's a right answer for this, but in your experience, you know, is there, are there things people can do to help? Are there things that, you know, I think in that scenario, everyone wants to help, but no one knows how yeah it's tough I guess just be there like I said we had people strangers we didn't even know cook for us like the community spirit that we had behind us was amazing just be there just ask them what they called their baby I can guarantee you that they'll want to tell you this is my baby I had a daughter her name was Chloe they want to talk about their children just as much as the next person wants to talk about their children please don't say oh you know everything happens for a reason tell me what reason there is for that to happen to us that's 
to anybody at any gestation. There is no reason. Oh, you know, you're going to have other kids. Don't say that to people. They're still grieving. Just be there, talk to them, talk to them about their experience. Just yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think what also what you're saying there is is sometimes just even listening. Like if you don't know, just listening is enough. Like you don't need to have the answers and you don't need to know what to say. You can just be there. You know, you use that word be there. And I think just it's just be present. Like I don't even know the answers. Like I was saying to you before, I have a, a friend and they lost their baby and I remember seeing her down the street and I didn't know what to say to her. I've her situation is different to mine. But I didn't know what to say. A loss is a loss at any gestation, no matter, you know. But, oh, yeah, I didn't know what to say to her, even though I've lived that experience. But it's okay to not know what to say, but saying nothing is worse. Oh, Kim, I don't want to finish this conversation. I feel <laughs> like we, you know, we've just, we've spoken about Chloe, but there's still so much more we could say about it. Yeah, I mean, we. she's still very much a part of our family. My boys know they have a sister. But you ask my three-year-old, you know, where's your sister? She lives in the stars. Um, we celebrate her birthday every year. They blow out her candles. I wanted them to grow up knowing that they had a sister. She, she lived for a short time. She's still a person. She's still very much part of our family. And Kim, looking back, is there something that, you know, There's a, is there a takeaway from it? Is there something that when you look back through that experience that you're like, oh, this is something that, you know, could change or something that might have been helpful back then? Yeah, I mean, look, my midwives were amazing. They were incredible. I can't fault them enough. However, I do think that there needed to be more education around that bereavement, like what what happens when it doesn't go right like I say she was handed to me in a kidney dish or we were actually we were given a pack um for a support group called Bears of Hope who are absolutely amazing they are a bereavement service for they're a support service for parents and families who have lost a child at any point so we were given all of that but we were just given a bag you know this is take this home have a read there was no counselling services there was no we all we kind of had to go out and source that ourselves same as all right well I've just my body thinks it's given birth so my milk's going to come in now what do I do you know there was nothing what to expect afterwards sort of thing so I think just more education around that bereavement and I think both aspects, like even just then when you're saying about that milk coming in, that's a really important conversation. Yeah, which we had to then ask about. It's like, okay, well, what happens now? Like, How do I stop it? How do I suppress it? How do I deal with that? Yeah. Just little things like that. Like we did, I did press my buzzer and I did ask about that and, you know, I was told, but these things should just be. Already there for you yeah. to be able to process. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't know what questions to ask in a time of need. I mean, you don't know what questions to ask as a new mom. No. Um, my head's still spinning about what's happening, let alone what, what to expect next. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, I found myself an amazing psychologist and she helped me a lot um, for the next couple of years, but nothing like that was offered. We had to go out and force that ourselves, which I think support like that is really important. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And Kim, we're going to need to tie this together today. I I do like to finish the podcast and it does seem hard to ask this question now, <laughs> but I am aware that, you know, it's important for you and for the audience that we kind of lift ourselves up a little bit because we have been talking about something that's so personal and something that's so painful. I do like to ask at the end of the podcast, is there someone or something in your life that truly makes you belly laugh? Um, Well, besides my children and the ridiculous things that they come out with on a daily basis, I would have to say my sister-in-law, who's also my best friend, so my sister-in-law, Danielle, her and I are just on the same wavelength. She, The stuff she says, just I can cry. I'm laughing that much. We have the same thoughts and same, same opinions and same, we're just like the same person. So she just, I could always guarantee and count on her to make me just, forget everything and just laugh and I love her very much for that my husband wanted me to say him but unfortunately not him so um yeah next podcast yes the kids get a mention um but yeah no look yeah I can't thank her enough for making me laugh yeah yeah oh thank you so much for giving up your time today and coming on and having a conversation with us and the listeners out there thank you for having me What an incredible woman. I know that conversation was not an easy one to have. Kim mentioned to me after the podcast another service that you may not be aware of called Lightening the Way. It is a community-funded charity that works towards helping women who live in regional and rural New South Wales who have suffered pregnancy loss. The aim is to provide information not only to the women who have lost their babies, but to those who support them, work with them and love them. So thank you, Kim, for coming on and sharing your story today. Next week, I will be talking to Jess about her challenging journey around bariatric surgery and what that post-surgery road has looked like. So I will see you all next Monday. Thank you, everyone, for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.